don't know. We were just making a movie. Movie? There are seven or eight. or eight corpses laying out there. The hell kind of a movie was it? I don't know. I used to know. We're not sure what type of movie we have either, but we might have the Citizen Kane of B-Horror Films. We're still up all night, and this episode, we watched Return to Horror High. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Rhonda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Godfrey, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. Welcome to Still Up All Night, the podcast that celebrates the films of USA's Up All Night series. I'm Travis Yates, joined by my trusty sidekick, Rob Cady. Not in the same studio still, thanks to COVID, but perhaps we can now dub this the Still Up All Night neighborhood, because fun fact, Rob, you're just two houses down from me. How are you, buddy? I'm doing good. Good to hear you. Yes. Um, so, Rob, let's. we've got some sort of breaking news here on Still Up All Night. Uh, not something you'd normally see or hear in a podcast covering movies that are three decades old, but I came across something in the Tampa Bay Times. We have some Rhonda Shear news, Rob. Oh, Lay it on me. Okay, so um, she's been keeping busy during the COVID quarantine by producing Rhonda Shear's Social Distancing Hour talk show, which broadcasts on Facebook from her home studio. So each Saturday, <laughs> at, yeah, each Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, you can tune in to see Rhonda interview all sorts of guests from the, the Blair Witch Project director, uh, Dan Myrick, to actor Mark Price, who, do you know who Mark Price is? I don't. I don't think many people could just pick him out of of just his name alone. I couldn't either. Uh, he was Skippy on Family Ties. <laughs> oh man, I was about to say so. Like, is she interviewing current people? But yeah, you know, clearly she's covering some of bases going all the way back to the Skippy well. Yeah, and she had 80 Scream Queen Lene Quigley, who was recently featured featured on our Vice Academy episode. Yeah. Uh, so check out Rhonda Shear's Social Distancing Hour every Saturday at 9 on Facebook. We're happy to uh, pimp that out here on our show. Rob, it's kind of like staying up all night with Rhonda again, isn't it? Especially for some of us old guys that feels like 9 o'clock is, is kind of like what midnight used to be. <laughs> That's a valid point these days. I'll have to definitely check that out and tune in for at least one. Absolutely. See what it's all about. Okay, so Rob, this week we're hitting your favorite genre horror kind of i guess uh with the 1987 film return to horror high not to be confused with nor a sequel to 1973's horror high which is kind of ironic because the premise is that something terrible happened inside this high school and a film crew is going in afterwards to check it out so Rob, right off the bat, we've got some confusion. What did you think of the name? I mean, typically any return to in a title means it's a sequel, right? Yeah, and I, I d wondered after, of course, trying to see if it was and seeing that it wasn't, if if it still was intentional. Were they trying to to cash in or was that some of the uh, the comedy involved here? And that's, that's in air quotes. Uh, oh, big, an, an early <laughs> dig. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess you do what you got to do, and and maybe if if that can garner some some eyeballs on the screen, then then why not? Yeah, maybe we're looking at a Leonard Six situation here, where they're uh, you know poking fun at uh, the fact that there was a not so popular horror high film in '73, uh, maybe a bit of a Halloween three season of a witch, uh, but mm. not quite as egregious of a ripoff as they did with that. I mean, they didn't call it horror high Two: return to horror high. Like, <laughs> like the producers of Halloween three did. And, you know, technically they are returning to a high school where horrors happened. So, you know, maybe it's Very an true. honest mix up or maybe it's a coincidence here as they, you know, they were 14 years after horror high was released. So it's not like they profited, 
um, off of any type of momentum of the previous film that they might be confused with or linked to. True as well. And, and you never know. I mean, I didn't do a, a super deep dive into people involved with the, the two movies, if there was some sort of overlap in some, you know, uh, far and distant way. I found no connections and, yeah. I, and I did a fair amount of research. So I, okay. I do think that it was just a play on words, given that this is, uh, well, we'll, we'll dive into what the yeah, film yeah. actually is, but uh, it, it might start to make six here. So, um, Rob, a few notes on the film before we jump into the plot. So Return to Horror High was released in theaters in early 1987. I came across some conflicting dates in my research. Some showed January, some showed February, some said a, a bigger release in April. So we'll just say early 1987 to be to be safe. Uh, it grossed nearly $1.2 million worldwide, uh, but it had a budget of around a million dollars. So really it just about broke even. Uh, mm -hmm. Some some scenes were filmed at Clark Magnet High School in La Crescenta, La Crescenta, California, if I'm saying that right. The same school used in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Hey, I missed that little tidbit. You know, there was so much inside the school, but there was some outside the school, but not enough really, I think, to identify it to that point. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't recognize anything or, or get any sense of where they were from the outside shots at all. So we talked a little beforehand, Rob, of today's show, so I, I have a little bit of an idea of what you actually think of this film, so it might pain you a little bit to find out that there was legitimate praise for the film, despite really being a box office flop. So the Cinefantastique, <laughs> I'm struggling with these big words today, the Cinefantastique <laughs> magazine wrote, Return to Horror High is a slasher pastiche that garnered significant critical acclaim even as it came close to succumbing at the box office because of what Sims called New World Pictures' inept distribution and promotion. So essentially Ooh. passing the... Oh, we, yeah, I failed to mention, we have another New World Pictures film. We didn't even get yeah, to that yeah. part yet. Um, <laughs> I was going to mention that. Yeah, and so uh, the, the Blockbuster Video Guide characterizes the film, or characterized when Blockbuster was a thing, uh, as an ambitious, low-budget affair with a film crew making a movie about gory high school murders caught up in a bunch of real slangs. It never really takes off due to slack direction. So that was... Um, that was Kind of a bummer. And then in his, semi phrase, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Semi phrase. And then in his book, 150 Movies You Should uh, See Before You Die, film critic Steve Miller writes The narrative threads of this low budget spoof of a slasher film are more tangled than the cocaine fueled fever dreams of Quentin Tarantino. As the end credits start to roll, we start to wonder if this was a movie about real killings or a movie within a movie based on real life killers or, well, you get the idea. <laughs> so as we talked through the episode, Rob, um, I feel like they were on to something here. You, your initial reaction to the film. Um, I, you know, I will say, you know, the, all those reviews have, a, have, you know, nail on the head, have a point. You know, by the end, it, it definitely achieved something. It's It's getting there that I had the real problem with. Like that first hour to me felt like a slog i i was i was bored i didn't think the, the comedy was successful i didn't think the horror elements were successful like one of the things i had read was about you know buckets of blood and and you know there certainly was that but it was all like within the frame of them filming filming a movie and special effects blood and there was, you know, no real gore to speak of. Um, so I just, yeah, like I said, that first hour was, I was like, man, we are in for a stinker. Mm -hmm. um, but again, by the end, it, it did pull something together that um, I have to say was at least partially successful. And um, it did some things that, you know, I, I don't know, at least I think for the time, you know, may have, you know, been a little unique for for a movie you know low budget horror comedy like this uh, so I, I do have to give them credit for that we'll get into the those unique uh elements of this film uh, i have a little bit more praise than you do i think for it <laughs> but i'm glad that at least in the end you felt like it came together and and 
um, somewhat salvaged the movie. I enjoyed the beginning. Uh, I enjoyed the getting there part. I thought in the middle it meandered a bit. Uh, that's where it kind of, that's the only thing that, that I didn't like about it. But uh, uh, but then the ending, and the ending, and the ending. <laughs> There's a lot of mm-hmm. false finishes uh, as, we, <laughs> as we get there. That made it a lot of fun. So yeah, you're right, so, certainly in the end. Uh, okay, so Return to Horror High originally aired on USA Up All Night on February 24th, 1990. And it would air five more times between then and 1997 when it aired for a sixth and final time, which I'm surprised because in 97, you know, they were starting to almost make the shift towards more uh, well-known, you know... uh, Reputable movies, yeah. Reputable movies, and so I was surprised to see this air that late. Um, Somebody must have been a fan producing the the slates at that time. Hoping that it'll it'll certainly become a cult classic. Yeah, and, you know, this, it never really did. No. When we when we uh, talked about this at the end of last episode, when we were going to do this, you and I really didn't have any memory whatsoever of this film, and I still didn't have any memory uh, when watching it. I don't remember seeing. I feel like I was watching it for the first time. Yeah, I absolutely was. No part of this movie um, looked or or felt familiar. There was no yeah little tickle in my brain of oh i think i've seen this it, this was entirely new and with six airings i'm i'm surprised that both of us missed that yeah uh all right so let's dive into the plot uh the premise here introduced in the opening title cards that read in 1982 a series of brutal murders robbed crippen high school the killer was never apprehended Three months ago, Cosmic Pictures went down to the town of Crippen to film the story of what actually happened, making the movie in the very halls of the now-abandoned school. They were not alone. So that was the title card, or cards. This is a novel idea that offers an opportunity for director and co-writer Bill Freilich to, and New World Pictures to really be a pioneer, I thought, in a yet yet to take hold found footage genre but but then the title screen zooming in at us in like large blood red font reminiscent of Friday the 13th told me right away that they're most definitely not going to go in that direction (laughs) and I was already disappointed uh, yeah, I, I 100% agree. I thought thought the same thing that hey, we were in for a you know documentary style, you know, not necessarily found footage, but the you know the early days of that, and um, yeah, we didn't get that. And you know, we should have. Uh, I mean, this I think definitely falls under a very unique style of parody film, which I didn't know going in, and mm-hmm. that early you know that ripoff of the Friday the Thirteenth font was a was a dare <laughs> I say dead giveaway? Yeah, but I'm bump that 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 was going to happen. Um, so the credits continue with starring and then in pieces in parentheses. Yeah, I, I did enjoy that little and little tidbit. Yeah, then it's like okay, I'm wondering if this isn't going to be a horror film at all, but like straight on spoof, you know, a la mm-hmm. you know student bodies. Or something along those lines. What did you think of that opening sequence? Did, you know, did, did it set the stage for too much of what what was to come? What, what were you thinking there after those just first you know thirty seconds? Oh, I, I thought I certainly was going to uh, have a more enjoyable ride than the initial part was for me. I, it it raised my hopes for for something um, to be a you know a fun horror comedy. And it just didn't work for you. No. So. The the cast comes up next, and and Rob, we've got a George Clooney top billing. Yes, I mean this is early in Clooney's career. He was mostly doing one-offs um, or short stints on TV series like Facts of Life, Murder She Wrote. This was seven years prior to his big break on NBC's ER drama. There he was ironically in an ER a comedy called ER. Yeah, I saw 80s. that. Yeah. And I thought the time felt weird to me. I was like, wait a minute. He didn't look like he did when he was on ER. And then, yeah, of course, I, I pieced that together pretty quick. Yeah, I did a double take when doing when, when researching his uh, filmography on IMDb. And I thought, wait, ER here? No, ER wasn't until the 90s. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, you know, Rob, most of the actors from the films we've 
watched on USA Up All Night. They don't go on to have careers like Clooney. Many of them are better known for their work in cult classics and B-movies. So, you know, pretty cool to see someone of the statue, uh, stature of, of Clooney pop up here. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for, for what little time he was in the movie, there certainly was enough room for him to somewhat distance himself from the actors he was surrounded with. You know, obvious that he, you know, had some talent. Yeah, it's almost as if he knew he was on the way up, and the rest <laughs> yeah. of his folks were on the way down. Which we'll we'll talk a little bit more about. Now, that's not fair to say because there's a ton of the, that guy yeah. and that gal in this thing, which we'll talk about too. I was equally excited when Alex Rocco showed up as a sleazy film producer, Harry Slyric. I love the the writing in these mo- movies and the attempt to just make these characters sound like th- like their personas <laughs> you know <laughs> absolutely and, the name didn't jump out for me but as soon as i saw him yeah it's, he's the one of the quintin- quintessential that guys absolutely i mean so we already have a you know you have to know somebody to be somebody slash six degrees of kevin bacon here because uh alex rocco played joe's father charlie polnicek in the facts of life appearing in 11 episodes and of course clooney had the run on facts of life yep so we've already got a connection here with this film and and two actors on facts of life and isn't there a third connection there, I believe, might be a production or writing or directing connection. Oh, I thought. There's, no, um, there very I'm, well could be an, another. Well, I was going to say, I think one of the sort of random other characters is like the brother of a famous actress. Okay, so we'll get into these guys because I've got okay, I've got okay. the backgrounds on them. Uh, all right, so we have our first topless shot seven minutes into the film, which is about the standard, wouldn't you say? About five to ten minutes. So <laughs> that we were... was actually a little late, I thought, but yeah. Yeah, of course, a uh, staple of USA Up All Night, but then this one was complete with an exploding prosthetic breast bit. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was an interesting and terrible it was, looking. It, yeah, it was an awkward scene. That I, I, don't know, I don't know how to really verbalize that, you know, clearly they were, were real breasts, yet all of a sudden he's He's peeling off a, a, a fake breast and, you know, it's being thrown and exploding. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and at this point, again, still not. Ha- I did. I like to do the research on the films after I watch them. So I didn't know quite mm-hmm. what I was going into. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around what we're dealing with here. Yeah. <laughs> and starting to get uh, an idea. But I, I still have so many questions. If the point. Of returning to horror high was to film the movie where the horrors actually happened. Why are they on what appears to be a film set? I mean, they've they've turned the gym of the of the school into essentially a sound studio. I mean, there's constructed sets everywhere, but they're supposedly shooting on location. So I thought they that's went, odd. <laughs> it, it, I think they I thought like they went a little over the top to show Hollywood production in action. Yes. Yeah. Now it start it does to, it, it starts to make sense as this movie develops though so we'll we'll circle back to that but circle certainly back. at first yeah I'm like why why are they building a sound studio in a in <laughs> in a school that they're shooting on location at but it starts to make sense as we as we roll forward um, so yeah Clooney shows us that he might have the looks but not the brains when he attempts <laughs> to leave the film set and stumbles across a mysterious hallway with blood dripping from a doorway. And of course, instead of going for help, he goes and looks on his own and goodbye. Gotta Clooney. Check it out. And that's right. Yeah. And uh, uh, goodbye Clooney snagged by a mysterious figure and slammed up against a tiny window, followed by massive amounts of blood <laughs> seeping from the doorway <laughs> entrance. Um, the figure with the, uh, you know, like the kitchen cleaning gloves, you yeah. know, the dish gloves, <laughs> the yellow, uh, latex, yes. yeah. Cleaning glove. So Clooney's character, Oliver, was leaving the set because he just found out he got a part on a TV series. And um, so Harry, our, our sleazy producer, replaces Oliver with um, the actual cop that Oliver was playing in the movie, Officer Stephen Blake. So the next scene when Harry introduces Oliver's replacement, uh, an actual cop rather than an actor, to uh, when he introduces this guy to the film's director, this is a real situation that plays out time and time again in Hollywood. You know, the producer is saying, 
think of the publicity of having actual people playing themselves. And then the director counters with think of the bad scenes <laughs> and, you know, for, for being a spoof, um, you know, for being kind of a comedy slash horror, this is essentially a parody. I mean, I think it's, yes. it's finally yes. safe to say this is a parody, but there are some statements here about the filmmaking industry that I found was interesting because normally this type of, uh, film, they don't, they, they only poke, dive into that. Right. Yeah. They, they only poke fun at other films and, and certain genres, but they, they don't break the fourth wall of now we're going to talk about how films are made. And this does. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I talk to my film students all the time about this very real struggle in Hollywood, the business versus the artistic side. Uh, but I was surprised to see it play out in this, a new world pictures movie of all places. We're getting a taste <laughs> of, you know, verisimilitude. This is the film theorist theorists, fancy term for realism. Um, but from a very unlikely source. Yeah, I, I thought those were fun little jabs, you know, inserted some of the, the more, um, whereas the other comedy I felt was failing, I at least had little little smirks on my face when those little shots were happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the, the true, almost the true comedy was really coming from was the pot shots at the filmmaking industry Hollywood, as, yeah. as, as itself. So. Uh, for more on the business versus art in the film industry, Rob, I recommend the book The Battle of Brazil by Josh Matthews. It chronicles director Terry Gillum's long fight oh. against Universal Pictures for essentially the essence of Gillum's movie Brazil Yeah, uh, back in the 80s. Matthews really lifts the veil on what goes on into making a movie and what went on behind the scenes in perhaps just the craziest, fiercest battle ever between a studio and a director. I've read it. It's it's a fascinating read and i highly recommend well he he's got an extensive history of of having issues like that during the shooting of his movies yeah. and you know it seems like from brazil onward he's you know has had those problems whether it's you know a personality trait of his or or he's just uncompromising in his vision i'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm loosely familiar with what happened with brazil but yeah that's an interesting uh, read i'm sure it that that scenario also really shows the power of editing in in movies because what they did was when when principal photography was done they essentially fired Gillum's editors and brought in their own team of editors and started reassembling the movie the way they wanted it and oh wow and so it just you know goes to show that you know how powerful that the editing in a film can be that you can create new meaning out of existing footage depending on how it's put together so pretty cool uh, release the Gillum cut, I guess. Yeah, it, well, there is. So there are two, <laughs> two, are two cuts. Oh, Gillum does have a, his own cut, finally. I, I'm spoiling a lot of the book here, but there are two cuts. So you can, you can compare and, and judge for yourself who was in the right, I suppose. Yeah. All right, so back to Return to Horror High, uh, because it now becomes ambitious with a nonlinear timeline. The movie started in present day, with the chief of police showing up at the abandoned Crippen High School to find out that there are six or seven or maybe right. eight bodies in the school. I love this line <laughs> when when Officer Tyler, played by Maureen McCormick, Rob. Yeah, Marsha Brady. Uh, Marsha Brady's in this, and she tells him, and she looks fantastic, by the way. Um, she tells him that we have six or seven or maybe eight bodies, and the chief gruffly asks, can't you count? And she answers, well, they aren't all in one piece. So uh, already the title gag of introducing the actors in pieces, in pieces pays off. Yeah. It's great. I love it. What did you think when you saw uh, Marsha Brady show up in this? Yeah, I, I am, you know, should have recognized the name when it, when it passed in the intro, but it, it didn't click for me. And then obviously as, as soon as she showed up, I was like, no shit. Yeah, yeah. And again... Um, and hamming it up too in, in this role as, as you know relatively small as it was uh yeah. she had certainly looked like she had a good time with it yeah so in the opening scene we meet the only survivor the film's writer arthur lyman played by richard Brestoff, uh another guy who was in that thing and also had a one-off on the facts of life so there's your connection uh, uh he uh starts to explain what happened and we get a clever transition where a cop is roaming the hallways of a school only to find out that it's Steve, uh, Stephen Blake, our 
did, did I get his name? Protagonist. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the real cop serving as the film's technical advisor, and he's looking for the film set uh, from days prior. So, you know, beginning our first flashback sequence with with him roaming into the school and taken back to the to the movie. So we're brought back to present day after we hear a squeaky wheel and see a mop and bucket being used to mop up Oliver's blood. And that's when um, Arthur Lyman is explaining to the chief and officer Tyler that it was dark and they just felt something was out there in the dark uh, in of the school and says that the squeaking noise just kept coming and coming. And, um, and then they think one of the bodies moved. And so this leads to a, a scene where uh, officer Tyler and the chief, uh, she gets really close to him uh, after a gag with a torn off arm from one of the bodies. And it's just se- it seems like she's getting aroused by all the blood yes. and gore. And at one point she rubs the blood that splashes like across her chest. And in each scene, like uh, her top seems to lose a button. And there gets to be a little bit more blood, at least initially for the next few scenes. Yeah. She starts, she starts clean and with gloves on. <laughs> and then just every scene she's losing parts of her clothes and she gets more and more bloody while eating a sandwich too. Eat, so right. the total just disregard at that point for <laughs> so protocol see, and blood and, there's your buckets of blood. It was just all over yeah. Marine McCormick. We, you just <laughs> True. Know. Um, all right. So the next scene takes us to a flashback of, uh, of the film set, and we see Amos the janitor pushing a squeaky bucket around. So they're setting up a whodunit here. Yeah, with uh, the squeaking. There's the, your link. There it is. Uh, and at one point, the film's producer says the principal and the janitor that survived the killings were playing themselves in the film. So there's our first set of clues. Um, we finally meet the principal. He's in a dark room catching bugs with his hands, a la Mr. Miyagi. Um, yeah. When the star of the movie being made within this film, Callie Cassidy, uh, she comes in. She's played by Lori Levin, an 80s TV actor that had a few brushes with well-known films. The day after um, the TV movie about nuclear disaster. Or the oh, day yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then her last film, 1990, 1999's Broke Down Palace, where she plays a mom of one of the jailed girls. Um, she plays triple duty in this movie, playing Callie, Sarah Walker, and Susan. So we'll, we'll get to all of them in a bit. Uh, Rob, what did you make of the principal when we fe- first meet him? Uh, do you think he, is he logically presented as a killer? What were you thinking when you, when you met him? Well, yeah, there's, there's certainly... Um hinting at that you know as they did with with the janitor there's just something uh not quite right there he's he's a little bit weird and um yeah I, I, they've got the the trifecta of the three links to the past all playing in the movie and and conceivably you know any one of them could be involved or it could be you know someone else entirely but uh, he was another one that i you know again i've, I've seen him all over the place but you know, couldn't name a single movie he's been in. Uh, one of the unheralded stars I thought of this film uh, yes. is the prop master Robbie, <laughs> Robbie Rice, played by Marvin McIntyre. So, Rat tail Robbie? Yes. So, you know, this movie, it's, it's kind of a love letter to filmmaking, but also poking jabs at the industry. It's disguised as a campy horror film and a parody. It's so much. And in the scene where we meet the principal and the principal describes the horrors that he found in the room that they're in and tells Callie to use her imagination when opening a closet door, when he's talking about the original killings, she opens it up and sets off a, a set of complex special effects of a <laughs> smashed face. head, melting face that Rob, that Robbie, the prop master, had carefully set up. And he starts ranting because they weren't filming at that time. So he starts ranting about his special homemade goo made for the prop. I mean, it's just funny and endearing. You've got all this stuff going on, the drama from the original killings, the mix of film people and original people from the school. And then you have the prop people just trying to do their job. And, you know, Robbie asked the principal if he knows how long it took him to rig up the special effect. And the the principal cryptically says, not as long as it took that murder to chop murderer to chop up that poor student. And Robbie just rolls his eyes at him and walks away. I love it. Yeah, he, he was uh, a definitely an enjoyable character, sort of. And that was one of the, sort of the things I had an issue with the movie. It felt like it was a little bit overly ambitious. Like, I think it had enough already going on with the twist and turns 
in the final act that we're going to take that, I don't know, it, it sort of lost its way in attempts to, to do all these other things. Uh, but I did enjoy his character probably outside of uh, the principal. I, I think he was like second fiddle to the, to the principal's character. Uh, spot on with the ambition of the film and how they, they tried because I mean the film goes Christopher Nolan on us next uh, <laughs> yeah. with a flashback within a flashback we're taken back to Crippen High before the murders and the school's quarterback Richard Farley is goofing around with a cheerleader named Sherry and Rob we talked about Tina Caspery and my mom's a werewolf she of course was, was Barbara in Can't Buy Me Love now we have a Patty sighting yeah. Darcy DeMoss plays Sherry here, and she was Patty the cheerleader in Can't Buy Me Love. So now we've got two of the three gals that I was just in love with as a kid from Can't Buy Me Love making an appearance on our podcast. All we need now is Amanda Peterson, rest in peace, <laughs> to make an appearance yeah. in one of our movies. R.I.P., I know. Yeah, and, and I, I didn't until uh, later make the connection. I, I, I had just one of those you know, brain farts where I was like, Hey, she looks familiar, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't make the connection. <laughs> I think it's an indication that I watched way too much "Can't Buy Me Love" as a kid because <laughs> I knew the the second she appeared on screen, and she was only on screen for a short time, and I knew immediately. Yeah, yeah. I recognized the voice. I saw. I knew the face, and I I immediately knew it was her. So, very cool. All right. So Farley makes a bet that that he can sleep with a a, a girl. Uh, that some of the other guys are fawning over, and it's Sarah Walker, so also played by Lori Levin. She's in a bad orange wig playing her second character. Rob, what did you think of the way Richard gets Sarah to agree to go on a date with him? Do you remember that scene in well, the locker room? I just loved first the the reintroduction of the the standard trope of you have to make a bet for <laughs> whoever can, you know bagged the the most you know the prettiest girl around first. Um, well, I mean, that, that scene sort of stands out because, again, it's a, he just, you know, barges into the girls' locker room where, you know, nobody has any clothes on. And, and it's, yeah, no big deal. Yeah, I mean, at least the girls are offended. But then he picks one of them up when um, Sarah keeps turning him down. And I think, what is he, does he threaten to take her out? To, to take her out of the room naked. Right. Uh, if she doesn't say yes. Yeah. So. What, what a guy. What a quality <laughs> yes. guy. So the way uh, you want to, you want a girl to say yes to going on a date yeah. for you, threaten her. Right. So she has to agree uh, for the sake of this gal and this poor gal and on their date, which looks more like a son and a mom, uh, like a son out on a drive with her mom. Uh, yeah. We'll post a <laughs> screenshot of this on uh, our social media pages. But Rob, did you feel awkward on their date when you saw the two of them? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But- that he fits uh, the age he was aiming to play at the time, and and she definitely did not. And and obviously, the, you know the way the scene unfolds, I, you know, I think there was some intention to that a little bit because she's uh, you know a thousand percent not interested. Right. So, um, uh, Lathan, uh, if I'm pronouncing her last name right, and if I'm not, I apologize. She was uh, at the time 32 years old, and oh, and the uh, the actor that played Richard Farley, Philip McKeon, was 23. So there was a, a I mean, not you know, not illegal age gap, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but there was definitely an age gap there, which made it look a little weird. Fun fact here, Rob McKeon played Tommy Hyatt the son of Alice Hyatt in TV's Alice sitcom. Um, he was in 126 episodes. And uh, here's another fun fact related um, to that. And we, I want to give a shout out to Silver Age TV, who, uh, who I follow on Twitter, uh, who just posted today, Rob, as of this taping on the day of our recording, on this date in 1976, the sitcom Alice aired its pilot episode on CBS. And the role of her son, Tommy, was played by Alfred Lutter III. Philip McKeon assumed the role thereafter. And the the other nugget is his sister, Nancy, star of Facts of Life. How about that? There you go. That's that's he was the character that was I I couldn't off the top of my head a minute ago. Remember? Yes. Yes. 
So McKeon, um, he also appeared in some horror films in the late 80s and early 90s, including mm-hmm. 976 Evil 2 and Ghoulies 4. And he dabbled in producing as well. He's credited as an associate producer on 1995's uh, Murder in the First, the fantastic film starring Kevin Bacon and Christian Slater. So, oh, I don't think I saw that. Oh, that's a definite must-watch. Yeah, I did see Ghoulies 4, though, and it was awful. Of those, of those two, I would only, only you would have seen Ghoulies 4 and not Murder in the First. Uh, okay, so the next scene, it, it almost turns into an attempted rape. It is an attempted yeah, rape, essentially. Yeah, it totally, yeah, totally is. Uh, and then all of a sudden, another hand comes from like behind the car door as he's attacking her in the car. Uh, again, I thought this was a really clever and ahead of its time filmmaking as we're now taken back to the film set. So we've got three planes of time working here. Now we've got the present day with the murders at the film set and the, 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 the cops outside of the school, the making of the film, and then the events that led up to the original killings at the school and they're blending together. Yeah. And we've also got obviously the, the film within the film, so we've got multiple levels. Not only are we time traveling, but we're we're within movie traveling between movies. Yes, yeah, and you know, much like this is kind of a love letter to filmmaking a bit. This is this low budget film features a monologue that just rails against the conventions of low budget filmmaking. Uh, Callie, the actress playing Sarah Walker, goes off on the director after this scene, saying that what audiences see on screen seeps into their mind and asks why it's always women being exploited in these movies and not men. I mean, uh, this is almost like the scream of B-movies, is it not? I mean, it's... <laughs> that, that may be a, a pretty apt comparison. The more, yeah, the, now that you say it, it does click to a degree. And it's, I mean, this is, it, it's complete with uh, the, the, the killer at one point is seen with a black, hood and a white mask yeah yeah. i mean it is almost it's almost like scream ripped this movie off to some degree maybe they did i know we're getting somewhere (laughs) so um i think this is where the for me the novel concept starts to wear off when we get some repetitive scenes of harry um the producer and then josh the director arguing about the quality of the movie Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we get it they made their point about you know the power of art and cinema and then second, uh, Harry, the, the producer, is supposed to be an antagonist. You know, he's sleazy. He's rude to people, very rude to people. But at the midpoint of the film, I actually found myself rooting for rooting him. Rooting for him, yeah. I yeah, mean, they definitely did that that sort of bait and switch yeah, on you. You, uh, ha- you have all these people that signed on to do a low-budget movie about high school killings, and then now they're all rallying against the producer um, you know, the writer is saying he wants to make a psychological thriller. The director's trying to make an artsy film and the producer's telling them it's a low budget film and that's not what the audience wants. And he's right. Uh, and I love the scene where you mentioned it at the beginning, uh, but he's literally throwing a bucket of blood on an actor yes. and says, that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I will agree with it. your sort of comment about the, at this point them sort of beating the dead horse with those points like i have a a distinct gap in some of my notes for for some of these scenes uh but yeah I'm spot on and and it's interesting to hear the alternate take with with your background whereas you know i, I entirely lack that background so my just perspective going in is different sure and and to, to hear that take like yeah it totally makes sense the, the screen connection and mm-hmm. yeah so good the, on you the, uh, thank you uh so the film's director josh forbes he's played by scott jacoby and jacoby may be best known for playing michael zbornak son of dorothy and stan zbornak from the golden girls uh for a couple episodes so we're really going to the well the tv well <laughs> for this movie with the actors yeah uh, and he he looks exactly like andy samberg with a mustache does he not uh, yeah, pretty similar. I mean, uh, and Every t- on further on your point, the director, if you go back to to his IMDb, it's full of TV work. So it's just very, uh, yeah, TV oriented cast and, and direction. Which again goes back to then Clooney. He left the set because he took a took a uh, a, a series a series, yeah. and so yeah, you have to wonder <laughs> maybe was that a late ad. 
with all these TV folks in here. Um, so we, we, we really haven't established a plot yet. Um, no. <laughs> it's about an hour into the film when Callie confesses to Stephen, uh, who's go, kind yeah. of become the protagonist at this point, that she doesn't feel right, that something fishy is going on, and that something out there in the school is trying to get them, and that maybe they should try to find out what it is first. Yeah, um, and suddenly we get the sort of investigation montage. <laughs> oh, yes. We we morph into like an episode of Murder, She Wrote, where the two of them go around looking for clues. You know, Taking notes. Oh, everyone's a suspect. Yeah, all sorts of reveals are made. Kathy, uh, Stephen's ex-girlfriend from high school, is, is Principal Castleman's daughter. Um, yeah, and they, and they hid the fact because they didn't want, you know, her reputation sullied by being, you know, connected to the principal. Right, right. The writer we find out went to Crippen High School. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's mentioned. You mentioned it just a second ago. It's so comical because they're both carrying around these little notebooks, and every time in this montage something new is revealed, we get a tight shot of them like furrowing their brows and writing down, <laughs> and their writing notes. notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, of course, all this time together means that Callie and Steven are going to fall for each other. Of course. And they, they proceed to have one of the oddest sex <laughs> scenes that I can remember. Um, <laughs> I don't even... Uh, I, don't, I don't have no words for that scene. I was just confused and the the weird welding yeah. flashing in the background and they're essentially just laying on top of each other. It's there was a, a lot of hugging... It, and there were kids' drawings all over yes. the wall in the room. <laughs> yeah, they. I. I had to kind of really put some thought to figure out what was going on in here. Um, yeah, it's a montage of sorts because yeah, you've got them in bed naked. They keep cutting to. I assumed was the props team welding something together outside their room, which does it does create a cool lighting effect that kind of looks like lightning outside. But it doesn't explain why or what they're welding. Well, in the frequency at which they felt they needed to continually show them welding. Right. And then, uh, and then the cuts to clues that they had pinned up on these boards, and then the the the, the crayon drawn pictures done by kids. So obviously, it was the art room. I, I has to be. But <laughs> yes. um, you know, there's one of a lion. There's there's someone on a playground. And then, Rob, you didn't even mention, it's all set oh. to an 80s rock song that sounds yes. like it belongs in a John Hughes film, not a low-budget horror film. Um, okay, so you have to pause to notice this detail, I think, because it flashes by so fast. But uh, in during this montage, this odd sex montage, I guess you'd call it, on the notes for Amos the Janitor who earlier bragged to Stephen that he was going to get lots of women with his newfound fame because he was well endowed. Yes. He's going to go do, go do porn. <laughs> yeah. So on Stephen's notes on Amos, when they're cutting between the sex and the welding and the notes on the screen, the last line on his notes on Amos is well hung with an exclamation point. <laughs> I missed it. Yeah. This is such a hilarious <laughs> detail that probably went unnoticed by the majority of the movie's audience. And again, it gives it like a scream quality by, by giving it a wink and a nod to the silliness yeah. of, of, of other, oh, I loved it, other, of other horror, you know, B-horror films. And, and I will say Amos, too, was, was a character that uh, I wish he had a few more scenes than he had had. Yeah. He's, he's you know, barely in it, but with just goofy scenes every time. <laughs> yeah, st stole, the, st stole the same scene every time he was on screen. All right, so it looks like our plot is coming together, and our protagonists are Steve and Callie. Um, now oh, but before you go there, though, we have to address that we've reached, like, inception level <laughs> within the movie where that whole scene is revealed to be, like, a dream oh, sequence yes. within a dream sequence. So now we've added that whole other level of movie within a movie, cross-generational and now dreams within dreams. Yeah, yeah. The, the the morning after they hook up, the killer shows up and kills Steve. Callie escapes, gets in her car where Amos is waiting in the back seat with a knife. And then you hear cut, and it's all part of the movie. But then Josh, direct, the director, yells, no, Amos, stop. And then complete <laughs> with the infamous Jaws camera zoom. Yes. Um, and then Amos cuts Callie's head clean off. It goes flying out of the car window. But wait, there's more. Yeah, then Callie wakes up, and it was a dream sequence, the whole thing. Now we have a fourth plane of time. 
in our movie to deal with. And yeah, it's we, we've gone full on Inception. It's just, it's ambitious doesn't even feel like an ambitious enough word to describe what they're going for here. You wonder if at that point, it, is it them doing something interesting or is it like, no, now add this other layer, you know, that'll be the joke. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I feel like, Rob, this is a great time to dive into the work of the film's director, Bill Freilich. Freilich. Uh, the reason I waited till now is because of the Nightmare on Elm Street vibe that this scene gives us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's likely because uh, Froelich, Freilich, who also co-wrote the script, is a veteran TV writer, producer, and director uh, from the 80s. His work includes writing credits for a lot of mystery detective shows, Heart to Heart, The New My Camera, Scarecrow, and Mrs. King. So that's, I think, one of the reasons for that heavy layer of whodunit in the movie. But okay. also, he wrote and directed two episodes and was co-executive producer on 22 episodes of the TV series Freddy's Nightmares, the TV spinoff oh, from Nightmare that. on Elm Street. And that was half of the, t- of the series run of 44 episodes. Because I thought I saw two. Didn't he do some Outer Limits episodes? I, I might have. Might have. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I missed the Freddies, though. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he was the perfect guy for this project, I think, given his connection to that, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street where it's dream within a dream. Yeah. That yeah. kind of really kicked off that whole thing. So, yeah, pretty cool there with uh, with our director and, and co-writer. All right, so it starts to all come together when Steve and Callie find the basement of the school with skeletons, all of Kathy Castleman's ex-boyfriends. Creepy. What you, would you make when they finally made it down to the basement? Well, I loved the, the how they made it down there component because I just chuckled as the, the impracticality of that even working in the first place <laughs> but that's that's all beside the point uh yeah i mean it, it definitely finally achieved some some of the element of i thought i thought horror where this sort of solidified that where everything else you know was always sort of in the, the comedy vein this had okay that the that room was legitimately creepy and you know all de- decaying corpses that you know have been there since you know the school closed so you know years and, uh, Which explained yeah. the bugs that the that the principal was always the flies that the principal was always catching. Yes, why well, they only he... buzzed around him, I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know. Uh, so Amos, the janitor, shows up and says that they all wanted to touch her, so they were killed. And then uh, Steve asks if Principal Castleman had Amos killed them, and Amos says no. But then he attacks Steve, and during their fight, Steve's notes come into play. Because he punches Amos in the thigh, which we know from Steve's notes about Amos uh, and his well endowment, this this hurt a lot more than a standard punch to the thigh. Uh, he punched him in the Winkleberry, as my son might say. Uh, that's some fine continuity right there, Rob. I think of of Amos mentioning his well endowment, then slyly putting it in Steven's notes in a in a sex scene montage that no one noticed except me and then yeah and then the close in the loop <laughs> and then the punch closer to the knee but then it ended up hurting a lot more than usual um and then oh the scooby-doo moment yes uh the mask comes off no, and not amos at all oh no, steve and amos when they're wrestling around steve grabs amos's face only to pull off a mask and reveal that it's principal castleman Oh, what did you think of this just groan moment? Exactly that. It, it was a groan moment. And, and I, I loved how, though, he was seemed to be freakishly strong. And that, that component is never really addressed yeah. in the movie at all. I just more to, more to sort of chuckle about. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's revealed that it's, it's been the principal. He's responsible for all of it. Yeah, he, and he almost morphs into like a Jason Voorhees like character. Yes, um, and hundred percent. He pulls out a razor, uh, ties up Callie, and gives the big end of Act Two monologue. You know, revealing that Steve got Kathy pregnant, and Kathy had to give herself an abortion, presumably uh, killing herself. Um, earlier, Castleman had told Steve that Kathy had gone off to school. And now he asks if he'd like to see her, that she's gone off to school every day. Because you think grad school when he says that initially. 
Uh, and then it turns out he wasn't lying. She was at school every day, just in the high school, in the, in the basement. basement. And he turns a chair around to reveal Kathy's skeleton. And when he turns her around, we hear the familiar squeaky wheel yeah. that we were supposed to think was Amos's mop bucket, which ends up not mattering because he was Amos anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, one and the same. Uh, so we learned that it was this crazy ex-principal Castleman pushing his dead daughter around the school. Uh, brilliant. I love it. I love the, the squeaky wheel tie-in, that the swerve there. Um, so Steve eventually tricks Castleman to let his guard down and spears him with a javelin, which is laying down here. Presum- <laughs> which I was a little disappointed with that scene. Uh, yeah. there, there was no thread anywhere to connect that. Like, how is he an expert javelin thrower? Yeah, it's strong enough to go through concrete. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. So <laughs> Fix pre- it to the wall. <laughs> presumably killing the killer. So most films, Rob, would end here, right? Yeah, um, yep. But not this one, because remember, we're dealing with three, at least three planes of time, more if you count the dream sequence. Um, the sequence with Steve killing Principal Castleman is in the middle of, of the timeline, so we're brought back to present day, where it's revealed that uh, by the writer that Steve and Callie never made it out and that things happened so fast after that. So, you know, you, you, you thought that they were going to escape. But then we actually see Steve and Callie's body under bloody sheets outside of the school. And, and that, was a, that was a blink and you'll miss it yes, scene too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so now the, the police are making a frontal assault on the school and the basement. Okay, so there's a big spoiler here, and if you're going to watch this movie post-podcast, I recommend stopping here, watching the movie, and then coming back to finish up with us, because I don't know about... Rob, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, even if the film didn't sit well with you, we both, I think, loved the ending. So Yeah, uh, agreed. Okay, so hopefully you've stopped it, now you're back. Uh, It's super cheesy, but again, such a novel concept. So... The writer shows the cops where the basement is, and then he walks out alone to the front of the school, surveys all the dead bodies, and then yells, we're all clear. Everyone gets up, and I mean everyone. The producer Harry, director Josh, the first AD, Callie, Stephen, everyone that was killed, they all grab their props, all the mangled body parts that had made the cops think they were all dead, and they jump into their cars to take off and josh says to harry i can't believe you came up with this idea and harry responds think of the publicity they all died but the movie survived and oh. and suddenly yeah, as you said earlier you're you love the producer all of a sudden in this weird twist in the movie yeah. and everybody's super happy with how it's turned out and they all kind of just shoot off into the sunset you know overjoyed with what they've accomplished uh, Steven, even Steven, the cop that was <laughs> still a cop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he's been caught up so much in this whole thing that apparently he's going to, you know, run off with Callie and, uh, g- get into the film business now. Cause he's thrown his, his police career out the window with this stunt. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, our, we've got a twist upon a twist here, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I said, when we first started, that was the, what what brought it all together where you have you have to give this movie credit for reaching and at least trying for for this level of of i don't even know what to what to call it of of the layered twists and the the time jankiness and all of that yeah. i just yeah I, I give them full credit for for at least attempting um you know not completely getting there in my eyes but um it made the movie worth watching at that point. Excellent, excellent. And, you know, uh, again, most movies would stop here. Rob, we're not done yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. An odd moment down in the basement where Principal Castleman is still alive and the cops have to shoot him several times. Again, a la kind of Jason Voorhees. I mean, they just all unload on him to finally kill him. Or so we think, because there's one more twist coming. (laughs) Yet another scene. The the film's writer, uh, this whole time, the only survivor that was talking to the police and kind of linked the present day and the the past, Arthur, Arthur Lyman, is still in the school. And he sits down at a typewriter and he pulls up a picture of Principal Castleman and says, It's okay, Dad. They always make a sequel. So the writer was Castleman's son and Kathy's brother all along. And in one finally gotcha moment, 
we hear the familiar squeaky wheel and blood begins to drip down on the page as Arthur's typing it. And he turns around smiling and says, dad. And then finally roll credits. Credits. Uh, quite the roller coaster here in the final five minutes of the film. Um, <laughs> I have to say, too, I stuck through the credits to, to hear just on the off chance that there would be yet another scene because I was like, yeah. why stop now? And did you catch it? I, well, the squeaking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's no scene, but you no hear image, squeaking yeah, yeah. at the end. So you stuck around for the closing credits. So you had to hear the song. Of course. Uh, you are one of the biggest horror fans I know. So I feel like this is your personal theme song <laughs> the the movie the song is scary movies by the band pleasant company and the lyrics oh, you even looked it up the lyrics are essentially describing how the singer likes all of the things that happen in a scary movie i like when people walk down the hall and disappear <laughs> it's so classic. i just love how on the nose these songs are yeah. in all of these movies uh, it's it's a uh, classic and so fitting for this movie that's skirts being a pair it doesn't skirt it is a parody film but so, it, but it yeah. but it's i say it skirts because it also like you said is so much more um it 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 it, it just it's so ambitious and it's it's so much more than a parody film it's just one of the many layers that, we'll end this show rob with the full song it's oh, it's, have to. it's amazing have to. so stick around for that Whew. okay so um i loved it you we're, are kind of lukewarm on it. I, I hope you have yeah. a little bit more appreciation now, having broken it down a little bit more. What, what? I, I think I do. I still think that the the first hour was was okay. really slow for me. Okay. But uh, again, I, I I have to say it's worth a watch simply to to see where it goes and and pick up on all these layers. And and yeah, I do have an additional appreciation based on you know your your insight into you know, what was, was occurring and the, the added layer there that upon initial view were just to me and to some degree, some of the, the flatter jokes, but yeah, in retrospect, it makes it a little more sense now. Um, yeah. So would you say it's worth staying up all night for? I'm, I'm probably 50, 50 on it. Like, I think you have to be in the right mood for this one. And then maybe that's why I, had trouble in that first hour um okay. so yeah i'll say i'll say 50 50 right. uh I, I think absolutely it's worth staying up all night for uh I, I said it earlier i feel like this movie was ahead of its time um you know i'm not saying it's citizen kane and i'm not <laughs> saying that bill fralick is orson wells but return to horror high tries to be the Citizen Kane of B-movies, I think. It has all the conventions and tropes of a low-budget 80s horror film, but it uses clever nonlinear plot lines. It has a, so much to say about the film industry and the genre itself in which it operates in a, in a parody kind of way, but then also well, in, in some dramatic scenes as well. Uh, he clearly inspired Christopher Nolan, so... Yeah, there yeah. you go. I mean, this started got that so much. Um, you know, it gives us something different when every other VHS that you'd pick up off the shelf in, in the horror section around this time was the same. Um, you know, you didn't like the beginning. I think it drags a bit towards the end, but it's still a fun watch that pokes fun at the B-movie genre while very much being a B-movie itself. Um, I think that... Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there with... It is different from everything else on the shelf, and I think that circles back to what I said. You have to be in the mood for that. If you're going in expecting those traditional movies, yeah, I think you'd be disappointed. But sure. if you're if you're ready for something different, yeah, give this one a go. So um, let's take a look real quick as we wrap up here and see what other people are saying about Return to Horror High. Um, there's no official tomato meter score for the film, unfortunately, as often is the case with some of these lesser known films, but, yeah. but Rob, what do you think the average score, uh, on a scale of one to 100 is on tomato meters on the, t or on the, t on Rotten tomatoes? Gosh, this is a tough one. I, I, I I'm going to go 43. It surprises me a bit to learn that the audience average on Return to Horror High is only 18%. Whoa! So a lot of people share your um, 
thoughts more so than mine. Super but 18. Yeah, that's so that low. Is, it is. Super reviewer Al, Alexis N gave it two stars and wrote, Oh, hello, young George Clooney. I couldn't even tell what, what was going on. Halfway through, I was like, wait, what? It's so cheesy, so dumb, and it really hits home the fact that you should never ask, uh, hey, is blank, is that you? Because it never is, and that's how you end up dead. <laughs> so <laughs> wise words of advice from Alexis, but I think she missed the point that they were trying to spoof it. So, yeah. um, And then super reviewer Brandon S. only gives it half a star, but took time to write a long review about it. So here's just a few of the excerpts from his long review. Return to Horror High is a horror-slash-comedy movie that doesn't succeed at anything it's trying to do. The movie is a complete failure all the way from the beginning to the end. The film, quote, stars George Clooney, despite the fact that he's only in five minutes of it, and Maureen McCormick, who you know is Marsha Brady from the original Brady Bunch, uh, who plays a horny young police officer. Uh, Both actors give the worst performances of their careers. He goes on to say, the movie how- does, however, have one of the crappiest sex scenes I have ever seen. <laughs> First, both the guy and the gal are hideous. They just shouldn't be intimate, ever. Wow. Second, during the sex scene, they flash back and forth between heavy petting and a bunch of steel workers welding. It literally goes back and forth from sex to welding for like three minutes. It's really weird and off-putting that these sweaty, fat steel workers are included in the scene. Well, uh, I'll definitely be on board with his assessment of the scene, but yes. to, to call them hideous, I... No, both were far from no, both were attractive individuals uh, just in this odd scene. I, Brandon, I Got do agree with you standards. there uh, that it was a weird scene, as we previously discussed. I don't don't necessarily agree with your uh, uh, take on people's attractiveness, but that's that's OK. Um, yeah. So some interesting reviews. Now, I think a lot of the reviews don't take into account what the film was trying to do, which was a lot, granted, multiple timelines, kind of a parody, but also trying to remain true to horror conventions. Uh, I think if you had more money attached to this, Rob, I'd think if this was not like New World Pictures, but one of the bigger studios, I think we'd be talking about a true cult classic at least and maybe even uh you know look at it with more revere like you said i mean you know the screams your christopher nolan kind of mind twists all kind of all kind of had a little launching uh, pad here a little bit absolutely yeah i I think uh yeah who's to say that, that more throwing more money at it would make it more successful but um there's always that chance yeah all right, so that is going to do it for uh, this episode. Rob, our sixth episode. We are halfway to uh, through a year. Um, so thanks for all the listeners that have that have tuned in and stayed up Absolutely. all night to uh, to enjoy these these wonderful films from from decades ago that still resonate in one way or another. Sometimes for the, for the good, and sometimes, sometimes not, not. For the good. But uh, <laughs> but hey, that's why we're here to to celebrate in all of it. So. Um, Check us out, uh, Still Up uh, Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're, we're still working on next uh, episode's film, so stay tuned. We'll, uh, we'll announce that on social media. and we'll, we'll, we'll have lots of fun stuff to post from this episode on social media as well, so, uh, so tune into that. Um, so that's it, Rob. We're out of here for now. Uh, I, I, I th- feel like next episode you're going to say that you slept on this for a while and, and you really do appreciate <laughs> what they were trying everything to do everything they here. were going for yeah we'll, we'll see if we can at least sway you past the 50 50 because i don't think that's fair you either have to agree or disagree that it's worth staying up all night for oh you're no. literally right on the fence you i know, just so already broke the rules you did you did so like this film you're breaking rules um and 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 blazing your own trail so that's okay well, as soon as you press stop, you're going to wake up from a dream. Oh, boy. And realize this was all in this you is know, the fifth plane of the yes. movie. We're in the movie. Oh, God. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll leave you now. Worth the wait here. We're going to leave you with scary movies. Bye. 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 Bye.